Let us pray. O Lord, our Father, You are good and gracious, showing mercy to a thousand generations. You load up Your people with benefits. You give us rest. You forgive our sins. You promise peace. You are a great God and You are to be feared. We bless You, O Lord, for You renew our strength like the eagles. You work righteousness and justice for us. You are slow to anger and abound in mercy. So Lord, show Your mercy to us today. Proclaim mercy and grace and peace to us through Your Word. Show us mercy at Your table. Send us out as ambassadors of Your mercy. O Lord, our Father, this is our praise. This is our prayer. In the name of Your Son and in the strength of Your Spirit. Amen. I also want to read for us from the Epistle to the Hebrews from chapter 13. I will read verses 7 and 17. Here again, God's Word. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the Word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for raising up leaders as officers in your church. And we pray that you would speak to us now a word of grace and a word of wisdom. That your spirit might be at work through the word to transform and mature us. That we might go out from here to do the work you've given us to do. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to charge both our newly elected ruling elders as well as all of you uh, as uh, members of this congregation and those of you visiting with us. Uh, We are focusing on the theme of leadership. What makes a good leader? How are such leaders raised up? What do they look like and what do they do? What is leadership in the church supposed to look like? Uh, I, I think it's safe to say, I don't think it'll be controversial to say, that in our culture, we are witnessing a massive failure of leadership. Uh, America, like virtually every other nation that has ever existed, uh, has always had a cultural elite who govern things, a sort of ruling class, who shape the direction we go as a nation. But today we have a tremendous crisis of leadership. Our elites, our ruling class, is morally bankrupt. Our elites have failed us. You certainly see it in politics, where it is hard to find a true statesman. Uh, anybody who could uh, legitimately pass as a statesman. It's hard to find civil leaders who uh, haven't been embroiled in some kind of scandal. And for those who haven't been uh, in some kind of scandal, it seems they're often lacking courage to do what needs to be done. Why do we have out-of-control government spending and runaway government debt? Why do our tax dollars fund the killing of the unborn? Why do we not have a coherent policy on immigration? Why is our foreign policy such a mess? It's all due to a failure of leadership. Civil service used to mean sacrificing for the sake of the common good. Now, more often than not, it seems to be a way to grab power and enrich yourself. 
We don't have true leaders in the political sphere, at least they're rare. But it's not just politics. It's also our universities. Universities are certainly uh, in a position of cultural leadership. They're sort of bellwether cultural indicators for where things are going. Certainly our universities lead and shape the culture because they're training the next generation. But how many of our universities are really faithful centers of learning these days? How many of our universities really promote the pursuit of truth? seems all too often our universities are actually... Uh, concerned with propping up certain radical ideologies and agendas. They're not really so concerned with training people for meaningful vocations, meaningful labor in the world. Not only that, but our universities, as is well known, have become cesspools of moral rot and degradation. Those in the entertainment industry are certainly leaders in our culture. They shape our culture. The stories they tell influence our culture, and certainly many follow their lead. But what can you say about Hollywood these days? Uh, the more we learn about Hollywood, the worse it gets. And there's no doubt that Hollywood has used its position of leadership to intentionally degrade and debauch us as a people, to desensitize us to goodness, truth, and beauty. Movies and, and, and popular music, too, and the messages they send are very rarely helpful to us. They're constantly leading us in the wrong direction, pushing us into places we ought not to go exposing us to all kinds of things that are inappropriate. Most of what the elites in Hollywood produce is garbage. There is a crisis of leadership there as well. What about the media and journalism? Well, the media and journalism have become something of a joke in our country. Journalists used to be leaders. They could uh, be counted on to help people in general to think through and discuss the issues of the day. They could be trusted to be fair and objective, at least for the most part. But who thinks that now? Who would say that about our media now? The media have lost touch with the people and they've lost touch with the truth. Oh sure, there's always been fake news, but today it's epidemic. And we have this ability to sort of live in our own little echo chambers where we just hear the the reverberations of really our own opinions bouncing back at us. Not even science is immune. Who can doubt that science... Uh, certainly has a position of cultural leadership. Scientists are cultural leaders in a certain kind of way, cultural authorities, because science has such prestige. But now scientists are faced with a so-called replication crisis, which has shown that scientists can be shockingly sloppy and even dishonest about their findings. So many of the experiments that public policy or people's life practices have been based on, those experiments have failed to replicate which is to say they're not really reliable. In fact, what we have found is that the more politically involved an issue is, the more likely the science is to be skewed. We now know that a great deal of so-called climate change science has been largely corrupted, and all you have to do is follow the money. I'm not saying there is or isn't climate change. I'm just saying a lot of the science has undoubtedly been corrupted. We are facing a crisis of leadership. Our culture is crying out for leaders, but they can't be found. In almost every area, our leaders have proven themselves to be corrupt and incompetent. Our elites have failed us. And yet the thing is, they are often able to use their power to keep their power. 
they're able to use their power to keep their positions anyway. So even though they fail miserably, they fail us all, they're largely insulated from the consequences of their terrible decisions while the rest of us pay for it, and they're able to keep their positions. And so just to give you one example, this is something that David Bonson addresses in his book, uh, on, on responsibility, the crisis of responsibility, which is a very helpful book on just this kind of thing. He points out that during the financial crisis, uh, the, the banks clearly had leadership that were responsible for this in all kinds of ways. But when the crisis was over, the banks did not fire their leadership for various financial crimes. Rather, the banks got bailed out. And the executives, for the most part, were able to keep their positions. They were able to skate on by even though they'd done all kinds of things to hurt our economy. They weren't the only ones to blame, certainly, but they were at least partially to blame, but did not suffer any consequences. The bottom line, you see this all around our culture, the bottom line is that we no longer trust our institutions. And even if someone says, well, sure, that's the way it is today, but this is the way it's always been, our leaders have always been morally corrupt, that very well may be true. But in our own nation's history, for the most part, at least our leaders had a basic competency that seems to be lacking today. Those past leaders, whatever kind of shortcomings or failings they had, they built this country. They built the railroads and the highways. They built the water and electrical and telecom systems we enjoy today. They ended slavery. They won world wars. They fostered periods of peace. They created the jet age and put a man on the moon. They created the American middle class, the wealthiest and largest middle class the world has ever known. Today's leaders seem far less capable and competent. It'd be nice if we could say, ah, but the church, the church is a shining exception to this because in the church we still have faithful and godly and wise leadership. But it's not the case. Sadly, the leadership of the church is not really much different. We're watching with great horror and really have been for decades now, at the revelations coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, the great corruption uh, in the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. We're grieved as we watch churches all around us cave into the culture and go with the flow, sailing with the prevailing winds instead of standing against them courageously. And, of course, that's really a failure of leadership more than anything else. We've got a crisis of leadership in the church as well. But here's what we need to understand. If we are going to produce great leaders once again, good and godly leaders, wise and mature leaders across our culture, the church is going to have to lead the way. The church is going to have to play a central role. The church has to lead us back into faithful leadership. Because only the church can truly foster the kind of leadership qualities we need. The Bible's a lot of things. Mostly it's the story of... of Uh, of God's dealings with his creation uh, as God has made the creation for himself, for his own glory, and as his people, as his creation uh, came under the dominion of sin, God's plan to redeem uh, a people to himself. We know that's what the Bible is largely about. It would be wrong to reduce the Bible to a handbook on leadership. But the reality is the Bible's a lot of things, and one of the things it is is a handbook on leadership. The Bible teaches us about leadership. Scripture has a great deal to say about leaders. In fact, the Bible is largely written by and to and for leaders. Every book of Scripture at a human level was written by a leader, somebody who could be considered elite. 
Many books of Scripture were written explicitly to leaders. And so, for example, Leviticus is clearly written to the priests who are leaders within Israel. Proverbs was written to train a young man to prepare him for the role of serving as king over Israel. First and Second Timothy and Titus were written to leaders in the church. They're called the pastoral epistles because they're written to pastors. And every book of Scripture, in one way or another, addresses leadership. The church is to be the model society. In the church, we learn what human life should look like, what rightly ordered human life looks like, what a rightly structured human community looks like. In other words, when the Bible paints a vision for us of what human life should look like, that includes leadership. And when we practice faithful leadership in the church, and that doesn't just mean being in a position of leadership, but also practicing faithful followership, if that's your role in the church, then we can begin to teach the world these things. Then we can begin to disciple the world around us, disciple the nations in this kind of leadership. We can teach the culture what leadership should look like in other areas of life. What we have in these two verses in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17, is a really nice summary of what leadership looks like and how it should function, particularly in a crisis situation. Because it's written to a group of people who are facing a cultural crisis and indeed a crisis of leadership. Hebrews addresses Jewish Christians living in and around Jerusalem who are pressured to go back to Judaism and to go back to the temple and indeed to take up arms to defend the city of Jerusalem against the invading Romans. It's written on the eve of the Jewish war with Rome. And the book of Hebrews essentially says, don't look back. Leave the old city behind. Leave the old priesthood and its sacrifices behind and instead pursue God's heavenly city. And know that you're a part of God's true and new priesthood in Christ Jesus. The old covenant's fading away. Let it go. Don't look back. The day is rapidly approaching when the temple will be no more. That earthly temple. Understand that the church is the new and true temple. And leaders in that community faced incredibly difficult decisions. They had to lead with wisdom if they were going to keep the church together because these Jewish Christians were facing persecution from non-Christian Jews who were saying, come back and defend the temple with us. And so the leaders had to know how to lead, but the followers had to know how to follow. They had to be exhorted to keep following, to trust, and to obey the leadership God had given them. So what I want us to do this morning is look at four dimensions of leadership that emerge from these verses in Hebrews. Authority, plurality, responsibility, and imitability. Okay, those four things here, and I think you'll see all of these are very, just very plain in the text and easy uh, to deal with. The first is authority. Leaders have real authority. Verse 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. As a congregation, even today, you've taken a vow to submit to the rule of these new elders. If leaders are to be obeyed, if we must submit to them, then obviously they have real authority. But what should that authority look like? What does authority look like in the church? What should it not look like? Certainly it should not be prideful or domineering or self-serving. We read from Mark chapter 9 this morning. That's a lesson Jesus had to teach his disciples, a lesson the disciples had to learn about leadership. They thought having authority meant being the boss and being in charge and getting to tell other people what to do and having other people serve you. 
And Jesus says, no, that's not what leadership is really like. He redefines leadership. He redefines greatness for them, pointing them to service and humility as the key, as the way to true leadership. Leaders are servants. Jesus taught a form of servant leadership. See, arrogant leaders really can't lead properly or faithfully. Arrogant leaders don't listen to anyone. And leaders who don't listen to anyone will eventually be surrounded by people who have nothing to say. And when they do speak, no one will listen to them because they haven't been listening to others. So actually, arrogance undermines authority. This is one of the problems we see, I think, in our culture today. Leaders have to be humble. Leaders have to be quick to admit their own weaknesses. They have to be able to admit their own blind spots. They have to uh, seek forgiveness when they have done something wrong, when they have failed in some way. They have to use their power to serve others rather than themselves. Leaders who act in self-serving and arrogant ways are disastrous. Leaders must be humble. You can't learn from your mistakes when you're busy denying them. And for a leader to grow in wisdom, he's got to admit his mistakes. He's got to be able to humble himself and say, yes, I did this wrong. I need to do better next time. And by the grace of God, I will. But there's an error on the other side also. And this is a kind of twisting of the servant leadership model, kind of diluting of what it really means. Many who are in positions of leadership today are afraid to actually lead. Those in authority can be timid about actually exercising their authority, using their authority to actually rule. They're so afraid of being accused of tyranny or perhaps so afraid of making a mistake that they don't really use the authority that's been given to them. But just consider a passage like this. This is Paul writing to Titus, who is a pastor of a congregation. Titus 2.15, this is what Paul says to Titus. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay, Paul's not telling Titus to be an egomaniac and go around just nitpicking and correcting everybody and, and, and you know, let no one disregard you. So make sure everybody knows what you think about everything. That's not the point. But he is telling Titus, you have authority, use it for the good of the church. Paul tells Titus to be assertive, to assert himself as a leader, to actually lead. See, it's easy for us today to think that servant leadership means we lead by serving rather than serving by leading. But in reality, it's got to be both. Leaders lead by serving, but they also serve by leading. See, that's true servant leadership. What happens all too often in our day is servant leadership becomes an an, an excuse for really not leading at all. And in the church, that means instead of having leaders who lead, you really kind of end up with a form of congregationalism where the congregation runs things. And I've actually seen this kind of thing happen, not here, thankfully, but elsewhere. And then what happens is it's really the loudest complainers in the congregation who end up making all the decisions. They become the de facto decision makers for the whole congregation because nobody wants to cross them. And you have a failure of leadership, a failure of nerve on the part of your leaders. Here's another way this works itself out. In our day, leaders often suffer from being overly empathetic. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Um, you know, we think of empathy as a virtue, and empathy is a virtue, provided it is grounded and grounded in and guided by certain other moral convictions. 
I mean, without any empathy, somebody becomes a sociopath. If you can never put yourself in another person's shoes and imagine how they might be feeling in the moment, you're a sociopath of some sort. So you have to have empathy. But if empathy is all you have and your empathy isn't grounded in and guided by other moral convictions, empathy actually becomes a vice and can do a great deal of damage. In fact, I would say the primary failing of leaders in an effeminate age like our own is unchecked empathy. Leaders who are overly empathetic always cave in. They can never make a decisive decision. Leaders who are overly empathetic find it impossible to lead because every big decision you're going to make is going to help some people and hurt others. I mean, it's just impossible to make a decision that's not controversial in some kind of way. An overly empathetic leader will find it impossible to make some kind of decisive decision. He's going to always be second-guessing himself. And he'll be constantly caving in to weakness. So, for again, an example, giving in to those who complain the loudest instead of doing what's best for the whole group. In everyday life, empathy gets in the way of doing what is right. Why is it that some parents just cannot bring themselves to discipline their children? It's largely because they're overly empathetic. They just can't stand the thought of inflicting pain. And so they don't do the hard and difficult work of discipline. They're overly empathetic. Why do some pastors and counselors simply fail to tell people the hard truths they need to hear? It's because they're overly empathetic. They don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. They're too fearful of a confrontation. Why do some churches fail to do church discipline? Well, again, it's because the leadership is overly empathetic. They can't bring themselves to do something that would be controversial or hurt someone's feelings. Why is it that so many churches have caved into the sexual revolution in various ways, say the the, the, the homosexual movement? Again, it's because they're overly empathetic towards gays, and actually by caving in, they're not helping homosexuals at all. They're actually hurting them by furthering their delusions. You see this in history. The problem with Neville Chamberlain is he was too empathetic with Hitler. And thankfully, Winston Churchill came along and Churchill was not empathetic and stood up to Hitler and did what needed to be done. He was willing to confront Hitler because he was not so empathetic. Leaders have to have backbone. There has to be a willingness to confront. Leaders cannot be pushovers. Unchecked empathy is a disaster for leadership. Empathy only considers the other person's feelings, not their ultimate good. In fact, this is really where empathy and compassion have to be distinguished from one another. Empathy is mainly concerned with minimizing pain and hurt feelings on the part of the other. Compassion aims at the ultimate good of the other, even if it requires going through pain to get them there. So an overly empathetic parent's not going to discipline at all because I don't want to inflict pain on anyone. A compassionate parent will because the compassionate parent knows if I don't do this discipline, it's going to be really bad for my child in the long run and I'm aiming at his ultimate good. You see that? Leaders have authority and must exercise it. Leaders must really lead. Leaders can only be obeyed if they actually lead. If we're supposed to submit to our leaders, that means our leaders are supposed to tell us things to do that we're then to submit to. Now again, they shouldn't rule in arrogance or in self-serving pride, but neither should they become indecisive pushovers. 
And indeed, we need to understand authority is inescapable. Human communities cannot function without authority. Somebody has to conduct the symphony or you have a cacophony. Somebody has to call the plays or the team will be in chaos. Somebody has to run the classroom or no one will learn anything. In every area of life, we need authority. God has ordained authority for our own good. And so the authority granted to rulers in the church is good. It's necessary. It must be used. That's one feature here. Second feature of leadership here in this passage is the plurality of leadership. And this, I can be very brief with this. Verse 7, remember your leaders, plural. Verse 7, obey your leaders, plural. There's clearly a plurality of leadership in the church. Biblical government is never one-man rule. I mean, unless you want to say that man is Jesus, ultimately. He rules over the church. But in terms of the way the church is actually set up, there's always to be a plurality of rulers in any given church. It's not one-man rule. It's what's called conciliar authority, conciliar leadership. It's a council of rulers. It's rulers who take counsel together and who together make decisions on behalf of the whole church. You see this in Old Covenant Israel. Israel was ruled by the high priest and the Levites, And the elders of the people or the elders of the gate who all came together to form a Sanhedrin or a session, a governing council. That's how Israel was ruled. It's this collective kind of leadership. In the New Covenant, we see this same pattern replicated. You see it, for example, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where you've got apostles and elders coming together to make a decision. In fact, the word Presbyterian means elder rule. The point is Presbyterian churches are ruled by a body of elders, a group of elders. And the way Presbyterians traditionally put this to really capture the way that the authority of the elders work is they'll put it this way. They will say elders rule jointly, not severally. Okay, that's kind of fancy language. Let me explain what it means. It means individual elders don't rule on their own. Individual elders don't get to make decisions on their own. Rather, elders together jointly make decisions. The session collectively rules the church. The the, the members of the session, the elders as a team, rule the church together. And you need to understand, and this is something the elders really have to remember especially, if I could sort of take you inside of a session meeting, this is what you would see. This only works if elders are willing to submit to one another. That's even why when Eric and Carl were ordained this morning, they took a vow, they promised subjection in the brethren, to the brethren. Presbyterianism means ruled by a plurality of elders who work together as one. It is a form of team leadership where several elders form one session. And it's the session that rules the church. So sessions make decisions, not individual elders. Sessions make decisions. And when the session makes a decision, that decision is not just the majority's decision. It is the whole session's decision. And so even those in the minority, they promise subjection to the brethren, they get on board with that decision. Now, if they think a really sinful decision has been made, uh, then obviously they can't submit to that and they need to separate from the session. But that's really the only way it can work. Well, let me give you an analogy uh, to this from uh, family life. 
suppose you've got uh, a husband and wife who have a disagreement over some parenting issue. Okay? They disagree over how to parent the kids in some particular way. Okay. As far as the kids are concerned, the parents should always speak with a single voice. They can continue in private to work out their differences with one another. But towards the children, they should always present a unified front. And of course, if they don't, if the children realize that, oh, mom and dad are at odds with one another over this issue, then the kids can start to play mom and dad off against one another with predictably disastrous results. Okay? And the same thing can happen in a church. If a session is not united, if a session does not practice mutual submission. How does Presbyterianism work? Again, we don't believe in one man rule, but we do believe that the multiple elders should rule as one man. The many elders rule as one. And so we have a plurality of elders in the local church. There's a kind of collective wisdom there, but we don't have a plurality of voices. No, the several elders speak to the congregation with a single voice. And again, what makes that possible? It's mutual submission on the part of the elders themselves. This commitment to mutual submission is what makes plural leadership possible. Think about it. The congregation cannot obey its leaders if those leaders are contradicting one another. If a session has as many voices as it has elders, then the whole church will be divided against itself. There will be confusion. Now, your elders are to rule together as one, which means we as elders have to submit to one another. That's how it works. That's what God has called us to. That's the pattern of leadership we find in the Scriptures. So leaders in the church have real authority, There is a plurality of leadership within the church. Third aspect of leadership we see here is responsibility. Leaders have responsibilities. Leaders have definite and defined responsibilities. And I think the really key responsibilities show up in these two verses we've read from Hebrews 13. Leadership is really the consummate human art, which means it requires maturity and wisdom. But what does it actually look like on the ground? How does it work in the life of the congregation? What are they responsible for? Well, verse 7 says, they speak the word of God to you. So that's one responsibility. Verse 17 says, they keep watch over your souls. That's another responsibility. Unpack these for just a a moment. Verse 7, they speak the word of God to you. Leaders in the church have to know the word of God. Because the Word of God contains wisdom. It has answers to all the big questions of life. And leaders must know the Word of God so they can speak it into the lives of others. Leaders have to be students of Scripture, seeking to master Scripture and be mastered by it. No one is fit for leadership in the church unless he is a disciple, a learner, constantly digging deeper into the Scriptures. And I can tell you, nobody learns Scripture without a great deal of effort. Leaders in the church should be those who have put the effort in. Who have learned the teaching of God's Word. It's why elders and uh, you know, elder candidates are tested. You know, they go through a training course. Eric and Carl did this. Other elders we've had have, have done it as well. They go through a, a, a course and then they are tested and examined in their knowledge so they can prove to a body of existing elders they have the kind of knowledge of God's Word that you must have in order to speak God's truth with accuracy and wisdom. 
And I want you to understand, this does not come easy. There's that old saying, how long does it take to become an overnight success? About 10 years. Okay, right? And that may be putting it modestly. Okay? It takes a long time to get really good at anything. It takes a long time and a lot of work to master God's Word in such a way that you can speak it with authority into the lives of others. Really, years of work and study and meditation, reading, learning, discussing, to master Scripture in a way that enables you to speak it to others with wisdom takes time. You need to know your elders are men who have put that time in and who continue to put that time in. And they do so, why? So they can shape the way you see the world by giving you Scripture. Not every leader in the church is going to preach and teach publicly. We make a distinction between pastors and ruling elders. But all leaders in the church handle Scripture. All leaders in the church are responsible for handling Scripture and have the duty to communicate Scripture. And they seek to communicate Scripture to you to shape your convictions, which in turn will shape your actions. And so really you could say church leaders transform you by speaking God's Word into your life. They transform the way you live. They impart God's truth to you. They communicate that truth to you, which shapes your convictions, which then gets translated into action. And in this way, leaders transform the way you live your life. They speak the Word of God to you. Verse 17 says these rulers also oversee the congregation. They are overseers. Uh, We could put it this way. The buck stops with the session. Elders are responsible for everything that happens in the life of the church. Now, obviously, elders can't stop people from sinning, and that's not really their job. But they can make sure that we as a congregation respond in the right kind of way when sins have been committed. They have a responsibility to make sure that the church does not become morally lax or indifferent. Of course, they've also got a responsibility to make sure that the church does not become a pharisaical, self-righteous kind of community where we just go around judging one another, trying to get the speck out of one another's eye, ignoring the planks in our own. Elders are responsible for the culture of the church and the vision of the church. Elders are responsible to create and foster a church culture full of wisdom and grace. They have to develop a vision for the church saying, this is the kind of church we're going to be. These are the kind of things we're going to do. This is our church's mission. And then they've got to make sure that it's executed. As overseers, the elders are shepherds. They are shepherds of your souls. Jesus Christ is the ultimate shepherd, the good shepherd, but he has delegated some of his authority to leaders in the church who are his representatives, who have a duty and an obligation to know what's going on in your life, to know your problems and your struggles, so they know how they can pray for you and so they can counsel you. That's their job. Now, not to be a nosy busybody, but to know what's going on in your life. And, of course, it goes on to say uh, in that same passage, you're to make their job a joy as much as possible. And that means coming to your elders with your struggles, with your, your, your problems when you're in a quandary and don't know what to do, coming for counsel, seeking their guidance. That's what God wants you to do. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. That's what you have in the session, a multitude of counselors. 
Your elders are men who are growing in grace. And they want to take you with them on that journey. A true leader is a man who knows success is measured not just by how far he can travel, but by how many he can take with him. And that's the goal. Not just that your elders would run out ahead of you, but that they would bring you along with them in this journey into ever greater godliness and maturity and faithfulness. And understand too, there is accountability for how your leaders in this church handle these responsibilities. Leaders will give an accounting. The leaders, the elders of this church will give an accounting for how they have shepherded your soul. For how they have cared for the souls of this congregation. How they've strengthened you in their in, in your faith. It says they'll give an accounting. That's really a term that comes out of the accounting world. Elders are to track souls the way accountants track numbers. And there's going to be an auditing at the end. The Lord will audit our work as elders. And we'll have to give an accounting. We will have to answer to God for how we have done as a church. Did we deal with sin? With the right mix of, of firmness and mercy? Did we as a church do our part in the Great Commission? Did we show mercy to the needy? Did we stay true to God's Word even when it was controversial? Were we willing to engage in controversy for the sake of God's truth? Were we courageous or did we cave? I love what G.K. Chesterton says. He says, I like getting in hot water. It keeps me clean. Again, elders can't be the kind of people who just shy away from confrontation. We have to be willing to have a confrontation with the world because of the Word. Because of the Word of God. Aristotle once said, the only way to avoid criticism is to do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. But that's not an option for leaders in the church, which means leaders in the church will be criticized. If you become a leader in the church, that means you're a lightning rod, and lightning rods should expect to get struck from time to time. Every leader knows, and this is why some people don't want to be in church leadership, but every leader knows that at some point, he's going to have to be the bad guy in someone else's story. And if you're not willing to do that, you're not fit for church leadership. Leaders in the church will almost always accumulate some enemies along the way, just like David did, just like Daniel did, of course, especially just like Jesus himself did. And that's why it takes courage for leaders to fulfill their responsibility to do their work. There's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be enmity. Leaders can't shy away from it. And finally, fourth, we have their example. Verse 7 says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate them. The example that the leaders give is so crucial. For one thing, their example is what gives their words credibility. You're thinking, why should I listen to this guy? Why should I go to him for counsel and advice? Well, okay, I can look at his life and I can see the fruit that's being born there. For leaders in the church, knowing the word of God is not enough. A leader has to live it out. He has to put it into practice. There are a lot of people who know the word of God really, really well, but they are not fit for church leadership. They have no fitness to lead because their knowledge doesn't get put into practice. Leaders live lives worthy of the calling they have received in the gospel. They are exemplary men. A leader by definition, is someone who has followers. And those followers, by definition, are imitators. That's what makes them 
followers. They are patterning themselves after their leader. They're saying, that's my model. That's what I want to be like. I can see that leader is bearing fruit in his life. He's living a life worthy of imitation. And so I want to follow him. There is no power like the power of example. Elders are to live lives worthy of imitation, lives of integrity, where you can look at the life of the leader and say, that's what I want to be like. That's the kind of man I want to be. That's the kind of man I want my son to be like. And elders live lives worthy of imitation because they are competent and faithful men. They're excellent men. They're virtuous men. Now, we shouldn't in this church, and and I don't think we ever have, but it's certainly a danger in any church. There's always the danger of confusing this kind of competency I'm talking about with success or this kind of excellence that I'm talking about with success. Some churches make the mistake of electing as their rulers the men who are the most successful you know, in in a worldly kind of sense instead of the men who are the most faithful or the most godly. But worldly success and Christian faithfulness, while often overlapping, are not the same. Who do we want as leaders in our congregation? We want godly, faithful, mature men to lead this congregation. Men whose lives are worthy of imitation. Because the reality is, every church ends up imitating its leadership anyway. And that's why no church can ever rise higher than the level of its leadership. Leaders bear the burden of living its exemplary lives. Lives that are a pattern for everyone else in the community. And so leaders have to be able to say to the congregation, as Paul said to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. It's one of the scariest things you can ever say to anybody. Follow me. Be like me. Wow, that's scary to say. But leaders in the church, that's what they have to be able to say. Let me bring this full circle. We are, as I said, facing a leadership crisis in our culture. And we will not resolve the culture's leadership crisis until we raise the level of leadership in the church. Our culture's institutions are failing. Really, to get to the root of it, our culture's institutions are failing because our churches have failed. And how have we failed? We have failed to be the kind of church God calls us to be, the kind of church our culture needs us to be. We have failed to disciple our culture as we should have. The church is inevitably and inescapably the leader of the world. The church is inevitably and inescapably at the center of every society. Sooner or later, as the church goes, so the wider culture goes. Herman Melville said the pulpit is the prow of the country. The pulpit is the prow. It's it's, it's guiding this ship of, of, of this nation or culture that we are in. That's just how it is inescapably. You know, we're talking about leadership. We'll move from the individual level to the institutional level. The church is always the leader, the institutional leader of any society. We are God's heavenly city, but we have a responsibility to the earthly city. Our failures or our faithfulness will echo and reverberate throughout the world. 
faithful churches will ultimately, ultimately produce faithful societies. When we're salt and light, good things happen. But unfaithful and immature churches will produce unfaithful societies. The world will go dark. The salt will be trampled underfoot because it's lost its saltiness. Reformation and transformation begin with the house of God. The church restores order and harmony to the world. This is our calling. Whether we're leaders or followers within the church, this is our calling. And so let's ask God for grace to practice faithful leading and following in the church so our culture, so the world might be renewed, transformed, and saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for calling us to be your church, for gifting us and equipping us to serve in all kinds of ways in the church. Some as officers, some not. And yet we all know we're called to be servants of one another, to love one another in this body. Father, I pray that you would help us to play our roles in the church with faithfulness and with wisdom and with integrity. And I pray that you would make us into a model for the world to imitate, that we would show the world what human life really should look like, what redeemed and restored life looks like, how you designed us to live, how things really ought to be. This we pray that you would do for us, in us, and through us. In Christ's name, amen.